Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. Today's episode shines a light on the political and intellectual contributions of Ben Fletcher, one of the most important yet least well-known African-American labor activists of the 20th century. Peter Cole's recently reissued book, Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of a Black Wobbly, goes a long way toward bringing Fletcher out of the shadows, enabling contemporary activists and scholars to learn from his work to build a militant multiracial union among Philadelphia dock workers during the early 1900s. In the following interview, New Labor Forum editor-at-large, Kafwi Atto, gets Peter Cole to describe Fletcher, the man whose contributions he ranks with the likes of Fred Hampton and A. Philip Randolph. Peter, welcome to Reinventing Solidarity and con congrats on, on this book, which is, which is great. Thank you so much. I appreciate your kind words. So maybe we should just kind of begin with the, with the basics, which is who, is who is Ben Fletcher? Why does he merit our attention? Why does he not only merit this book, but now two books? <laughs> so Ben Fletcher was an African-American born in Philadelphia in 1890 to working class parents who had fled the South a few years prior in the era of rising racism and violence, sort of technically before Jim Crow segregation begins, but in the aftermath of the failure of Reconstruction. And Fletcher, you know, working class kid, streets of South Philadelphia around the age of 20 in 1910. Um, he joins the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, whose members are nicknamed the Wobblies as well as the Socialist Party, and quickly became a very well-known locally as a prominent Wobbly speaker. He also quickly became known as the most prominent African-American in the entire national organization. And then a few years later in 1913, he helped found and then subsequently led a union of dock workers in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, which was the third biggest city in the country and maybe the fifth biggest port in the country and whose workers on the waterfront who load and unload ships were approximately one third African-American, one third Irish American and Irish immigrants and about one third other European immigrants. And the union, which was chartered as Local 8, was arguably the most racially and ethnically diverse union of its time, or for that matter, several generations. 
arguably the most integrated institution of its time, not just union. I mean, even the NAACP in the 19-teens was led by a white man. And uh, for the next decade, Local 8, with Fletcher often at the helm, was the most powerful, militant, radical union, because the Wobblies were, um, from their inception to this day, committed to socialism and the uh, fight against capitalism. And so that Fletcher was really the most prominent Black revolutionary unionist in his generation, period. He was praised by A. Philip Randolph repeatedly, uh, in, especially in his Harlem-based magazine called The Messenger, as well as by W.E.B. Du Bois. And he was praised by Wobblies, of course, like Big Bill Haywood and those of the Curly Flynn. He was praised by communists like Earl Browder and Harry Haywood. But he's largely forgotten. Yeah, I mean, even among sort of historians of labor and the left in the United States, very few people know much about him, if anything. I often compare him to Fred Hampton, the sort of Black Panther who was murdered in Chicago in 1969. Both were African-American men who began their organizing in their late teens. Both were revolutionaries committed to socialism. Both belonged to organizations that were anti-racist and worked across ethnic and racial boundaries. I mean, because the Panthers were not a black nationalist organization really because they very much were a left-wing organization that worked with whites and Puerto Ricans and Chicanos who were committed to the same political goals. But Hampton is actually much better known. He even has a movie coming out about him this month. Fletcher, totally forgotten. Really in their early 20s, they were sort of in the same place. Actually, you could even argue that Fletcher did more. I mean, uh, not to sort of compare in that way, but if you've heard of Fred Hampton, or I say if you've heard of Stokely Carmichael, or if you've heard of A. Philip Randolph, Fletcher should be in that list as one of the most important Black revolutionaries of 20th century America. Give us a sense of, of the organization that Ben Fletcher was part of, the, the Wobblies, and, and how, you know, how, how they fit into this kind of broader landscape of both radical politics and not radical politics, that is... What is their relationship with the AFL? What is their relationship with the Garveyite movement? What is their, you know, how did, how was, what did it mean to be a wobbly in the first two decades of the, the 20th century? Well, I mean, the sort of sarcastic but true answer is what did it mean to be a wobbly is to put a big target on your back because the federal government <laughs> would sort of arrest you and put you in prison like Fletcher did, serving time in Leavenworth. You know, the IWW was founded in Chicago in 1905, and uh, it was the greatest industrial city in the country and maybe the world. And it was founded because the American Federation of Labor, which was a small collection of mostly craft unions, was largely committed to so-called bread and butter unionism or pork chop unionism. Can we make a little more money? Can we have a little more power? But really, the AFL had intentionally chosen, because of its sort of lowercase p politics, not organizing many African-Americans, not organized women, not organized most immigrants, not organized most unskilled workers. And so the AFL chose to not organize most workers. <laughs> there is this huge void. That's because of their huge blind spots, a lot of which were sort of connected to racism and sexism and xenophobia. The, those who formed the Wobblies were a who's who of the, of, of the left. Um, Eugene Debs was a founder of the IWW after leading the Pullman strike, but founding the Socialist Party. Lucy Parsons was at uh, the founding convention, um, the sort of the widow of Albert Parsons, one of the Haymarket martyrs, and herself a prominent Chicago anarchist. Big Bill Haywood, who was the leader of the most militant union at that time, uh, the Western Federation of Miners, right? Mother Jones um, was at the co-founding, uh, was a founder of the IWW. And this union was intentionally anti-AFL. A, 
Um, it was anti-capitalist, where the AFL actually had no beef, if you will, with capitalism. B was sort of anti-nationalist, right? Rejected putting the nation, Industrial Workers of America, in their name, but intentionally made themselves internationalists in their imagination because they believed then and maybe now, uh, too, of course, uh, that capitalism was global. And so therefore, the struggle should be global. And um, three, right, like sort of was going to be all inclusive, right, of all types of workers, regardless of the sort of work you did, whether you were so-called skilled or unskilled, and regardless of your race, nationality, sex, etc, religion. And so the Wobblies did what the AFL chose not to do. And uh, so Fletcher, who joined the um, IWW uh, six or seven years later, but the IWW quickly sort of became a large radical union, never as large numerically as the AFL, but also within a decade was operating in two dozen countries on every continent where humans lived and was anti-racist in those places too. Yeah. And so I always like the example of the IWW started organizing in New Zealand because New Zealanders who were living in America moved back to New Zealand and started to organize under the IWW banner. It was the first union in New Zealand to organize Maori workers, these sort of indigenous working class, which white socialists chose not to organize because they claimed to be socialists, but they were also white supremacists. And so I could talk further about these matters, but that's the union, right? The IWW that Fletcher was a part of. The last thing I guess I'd say is that they were intentionally industrial, right? And so rather than organizing craft-based unions, carpenters in one union, plumbers in a second, building electricians in a third, right? Instead, you have a single building workers union. Uh, you have a single industry-wide union because employers were more powerful and collaborated. And workers who were in craft unions often actually were pitted against themselves. So you have carpenters going on strike, but plumbers have to cross the line because they have a contract. And so that sort of notion of working class solidarity is really at the core of the IWW vision as embedded in their motto, an injury to one is an injury to all. You know, the story you tell is one about dock workers in Philadelphia and the development of Local 8. Tell us what, did, what was Local 8, what, you know, what, what, did, uh, what did Fletcher do in Philadelphia? How was he successful there? What, what did success look like for him there? Yeah, so in Philadelphia, which is a river town, not an ocean, right, like New York City, which is essentially on the Atlantic, Philadelphia is upriver, up the Delaware River, which flows into the Chesapeake 100 miles downriver. And it's also at the confluence of the Schuylkill and the Delaware, which is why William Penn, the sort of Quaker founder of the colony, located where it is. It's in between. It's this small city, two miles wide, where these two rivers, Delaware being a somewhat great river, comes together. And because Philadelphia was such an important industrial city, it was uh, sort of exported all sorts of manufactured goods, everything from battleships to button hooks. It also was exporting through Pennsylvania lots of coal and iron and huge raw materials and bringing in all these things. There were thousands of men who worked on the waterfront every day. Fletcher was one of those people, right? He had first worked in the trade before he was a union organizer. And this industry was notorious for abusive hiring, where thousands might show up for hundreds of jobs and employers would basically play workers off each other by race, by religion, by neighborhood and also demand often bribes for getting hired. And all the effect of this is that not only was the work casual, labor uh, was weak, wages were low, and the, uh, but the shape up as it was called, which is famous also from the movie On the Waterfront in the 1950s in the Hoboken, New York port, 
was hated, right? Like, so after Local 8 strikes for recognition in the spring of 1913 and wins a, a two-week strike, not only do they win material gains like wage increases, they end the shape-up, right? Like, wait, uh, wait, wait, what's the shape-up? Tell us, tell us. I'm the, sorry. The yeah. shape-up was this, the nickname of the hiring system that I just described briefly, which is this sort of melee where thousands might show up for hundreds of jobs in the morning in order to get work on the piers. And this shape-up system was in every port in the country and world was at that era. There was no sort of control. And so you didn't have a job, right? You might have a job. And if you get a job today, you might not, and you finish your job tomorrow, you may not have another job, right? You have to find another job. And so this casual labor system, we often now use the term precarious, was the norm, not just in this industry, but in this industry in particular, right? Like, so you get hired by the ship, but uh, the system resulted in a weak, divided, low-wage workforce. And then you get a job and it's really hard work. It's very dangerous work. Literally, you could die any day on the job. Local 8, like other, where unions had the power, abolished the shape-up. Right. Instead, employers would have to call up the union to request workers and the workers would be dispatched by the union. In addition, the union immediately integrated its workforce. And so gangs previously of workers had been segregated by ethnicity and race. So if you had 100 people working a ship, there might be five gangs of 20 men. You might have a Polish gang, an Italian gang, an Irish gang, a black gang. That was literally the case. That's why the workforce was one-third African-American, one-third Irish and Irish-American, and one-third other Europeans, because employers chose to basically use diversity as a weapon, right? Divide and conquer. It's been used thousands of times in the United States and other countries. So IWW, anti-racist, immediately ends not only the shape-up, but immediately ends ethnic-based gangs. And of course, the effects of this we can only imagine, but in the hearts and minds of these thousands of men who start to interact much more with each other. Most of this is not documented, right? Like, I mean, we know this happened, but we don't know what people were thinking, really. But nevertheless, I call this integration from below because employers had created segregation and workers basically end segregation. This is 51 years, by the way, before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 legally ended segregation by race in the United States. And they also integrated their elected officials, their social events, etc. They also never signed contracts because to the Wobblies, the greatest power of workers is on the job, not at the ballot box. When workers threaten to strike or strike, that is when employers listen, and only then, right? And so not only did the Wobblies never sign contracts, these are sort of oral agreements, they would, that gives them the power, as they often did, they would actually walk off the job regularly in what often in IWW parlance was called direct action tactics, so that, you know, the Wobblies say you have to hire only Wobblies, but if the boss tries to hire some non-IWW members, everyone had to wear a button on their hat or a lapel, right? You could see who wasn't in the union. They would basically strike and say, you're going to lay off these other guys and, and, and call the union hall in order to sort of um, hire replacements. It wasn't just the elected leaders of the union who enforced integration and wobbly power. It actually was rank and files on their job sites that all the time essentially were asked and were expected to sort of basically be union and be union strong and in some profound ways. And this uh, was the way that the Philadelphia waterfront operated from May 1913 until the end of 1922, right, when essentially their power was broken. One of the things that I thought was really impressive with this, with this book, as you state in the, in the introduction, and as Robin D.G. Kelly states in, in his really beautiful forward to, to the book, is that working class people like, working class leaders like Ben Fletcher, they, you know, they, 
they don't, oftentimes they don't leave a paper trail. <laughs> that is, it's, it's, you, you have to kind of build, interpolate their personality from all these different sources. And you do such a good job of, of that, given the, given, given the, limit, the limitations of, of the material. And one of the things that comes out is that not only was he an intellect, and an organizer, but he was a funny person. <laughs> that is, a, he had a very good sense of humor, and there's all sorts of stories that you tell in the book that that kind of get at that. And I don't really have a question there, but it, you know, maybe you could talk about talk about that, and also maybe the process of just spending decades of your life trying to find out about this person. <laughs> you know, yeah. like what, what is it like to try to put someone together? Yeah, well, so Fletcher is a fascinating figure to me. I learned of him as a grad student and continue to sort of be fascinated and then continue to learn about him 25 years later. So like a lot of non-elite people, he didn't have a lot of paper trail. Like you said, he shows up in the census. There's a handful of letters that show up, but no doubt he wrote many others that simply didn't get preserved for any number of reasons. Ironically, because he was arrested and sent to federal prison where he and others had their correspondence read both in and outgoing. A lot of the documents in the book actually include letters and, and sort of spying on Fletcher. So some of what we know about Fletcher is only because the federal government was so interested in him and other IWW members, leaders, that they invested all these resources, right, to sort of spy on him, punish him, and then imprison him, right? Um, and we get the benefit of that in some ways. He was considered to be really funny, even though we have no audio of him. But uh, the sort of most famous stories that are repeated many times are from his trial where he and a hundred other Wobblies were in this mass trial in Chicago in 1918 during World War I and accused of violating the Espionage and Sedition Acts, as you mentioned. So uh, Fletcher at one point turns to his sort of buddy, Big Bill Haywood, who's the most prominent member on trial. And he says, geez, there'd be no color at all in this trial if it weren't for me. So, because he was the only African-American in the bunch. As the, after the jury came back in under 30 minutes with all hundred, all guilty on all counts, meaning that they basically hadn't considered any of the evidence or any of the individuals when they just said everyone's guilty. He turned also to Fletcher, according to, uh, to Haywood, turned to Haywood and said, you know, the judge isn't using very good grammar today. Uh, Bill's like, how's that been? And he's like, well, our sentences are much too long. And supposedly when all of them were then imprisoned in Cook County Jail again, which sort of famous for the Haymarket Martyrs were there. B.B. King later did a famous album live from Cook County Jail. He Then they're all thrown on this train and shipped a day west to Leavenworth, Kansas. And he supposedly conducted a mock trial aboard the train, making fun of the judge who had just sort of sentenced them to 10 to 30 years in prison. And so some of these stories are so rich and tantalizing, even though they're few, right? Um, I mean, there's so much more I would love to know. But because I only had so much knowledge about him, the original first edition and then this one is twice as long, but most of the book, the majority of the book is actually everything that Fletcher ever wrote that I have ever found or was written about him, both during his life and after. And so the majority of the book are these 125 or so documents that I include brief introductions to, to provide some help. But the effect of this, well, it's a very different organization for a biography, but the effect is that the reader can be a historian, right? Um, so that they can read these primary sources for themselves and draw their own conclusions. I do try to provide some guides because sometimes there's things that are simply unknown to the average person in 2021 about something, say, from 1921. 
the, the bulk of the book is in that format, although, it, as, as you said a minute ago, it also includes this really wonderfully written forward by the brilliant historian Robert D.G. Kelly, who was kind enough to sort of do that because he very much was taken, even before I started my interest in him, I learned from Robin that he in grad school also sort of was fascinated by Ben Fletcher and, and local aid, although he ever, never ended up writing about him until he wrote this um, 3,000 word forward. What is the legacy of, of ben, Fle ben Fletcher? And there's part of it, which is, well, no one knows about Ben Fletcher. So, so the, part of it is creating that legacy or creating a narrative on you know, how, should we, how should we understand him, his ideas, what he accomplished with local aid. That is, you know, you have at the end of your introduction, you have this great kind of ending. In 2020, a hundred years on, the working class has yet to catch up to Fletcher and his union. For those who wish for a socialist world or as the Wobblies proclaimed more than a century ago to build a new society from within the ashes of the old, anti-racist revolutionary unions still offer a path not yet taken. So if you could just ex expand on that sentiment, what, what, do you, what do you want this book to do? Yeah, well, I mean, I joke that I, I'm very much inspired by Howard Zinn and others like him who sort of seek a usable past, who want to sort of think about and learn from the past because I care about the present and want a better future. John Sweeney, the president of AFL-CIO passed away just uh, this week. Um, and I read the New York Times obituary and it was praising him for fighting racism and sexism and xenophobia in the AFL-CIO in the 1990s and early 2000s. The idea that 30 years after the Civil Rights Act, right, that the AFL-CIO still hadn't effectively rooted out those problems speaks volumes, right? And that 20 years after, after he left the AFL-CIO, a significant minority of the white union movement, forget about the white working class, right? White men and women who are members of unions who voted for Trump, right? Like, uh, and so we have major work to do, right? I don't wanna only bash white working class people. I mostly bring white rich people for the problems of our society. But like, I am mindful that uh, those of us who actually see a better and alternative future need to first sort of do work within our own ranks. And so for, for Fletcher's, I wouldn't know about the legacy, but the lessons is that unions like local aid led by Fletcher in the, in, in the IWW prioritized anti-racism and anti-xenophobia it was sort of at their core. That's one of the reasons they weren't as powerful in large because a lot of people were not on those teams. And also that sort of did not ingratiate them to the bosses, to the government, et cetera. Nevertheless, in 2021, I think more of us know now than we did maybe 20 years ago when Sweeney was president, right? The path to sort of uh, justice has to first go through dealing with sexism, racism, homophobia, uh, xenophobia, right? Our most recent president, embolden people who embrace those sort of hated ideologies. Unions have to be at the center of this because if you're asking yourself, how do working class people do this? The most important working class institution in terms of power, pick another, right? Um, and so as weak as unions are now, they're still the best sort of tool I would suggest to fighting against the divisions of our time, but also because underneath that, the division is, of course, our economic inequality and, 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 and sort of the capitalism. And that Fletcher was always there for, like many others, sort of like race and class matters are inextricably linked. There's no need to argue about which is first. Instead, we just think about both are problems and both have to be solved together, not separately. One of the things I did want to ask, and this is dealing with this race and 
and class issue and how, I mean, you just said we could spend an endless amount of time and we do <laughs> talking about what should we prioritize. But I think there's a lesson in the book because of Fletcher's own very complex views on questions of of race. And one is that, you know, Fletcher was a wobbly and like many members of the IWW saw interracial unionism as a tool for the abolition of wage, uh, the wage system and that workers were workers. And then, you know, work, workers, black workers and white workers, Italian workers, uh, Slovakian workers, because I feel like the turn of the century, you had all sorts of different flavors of uh, white people, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, that these are workers and that they need to come together as, as workers to, to, to fight. At the same time, recognizing that many uh, Black workers were confronted with racism that made their identity, that identity, very important. And, and so something like, this is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa, <laughs> the Tulsa massacre, and you can imagine the challenge of inter- racial unionism at a moment in which the kind of the society is is fraught in these ways and it kind of gets to we had talked earlier about the phil Fulner kind of comment about that the, how you deal with the color line the race problem for many in the iww the race problem was really a class problem but as he was saying, for many in the black community the race problem was a race problem <laughs> you know and and so you know, that's a very convoluted kind of question, but it, it's this, how do you square these, you know, or how, do you, how does Fletcher square these, or how does Fletcher help us in this current moment figure out this, this the relationship? Well, you know, Fletcher didn't, wasn't a theoretician. He was an organizer and a speaker, and so he didn't write long treatises, um, but we know what he thought, and we know also from his life. Um, no one had to tell him that Black people were at risk, that white workers and Black workers had differences. Glenn Fletcher was threatened with the lynching in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, where he was organizing in early 1917, and he regularly was sort of went up and down the Atlantic coast to organize dock workers, and in Norfolk and further south, there were African-Americans, but also in northern cities, he didn't only organize black workers on the waterfront, but he was often sent to places to try to organize African-Americans in Baltimore and Norfolk and Providence. And so the fact that, you know, we can only assume that he was threatened and dealt with racism in any number of occasions. There's only a handful of documented occurrences. But I think the Tulsa um, point that you brought up is, is appropriate. It's the 100th anniversary in Memorial Day weekend, five four months from now to the Tulsa race massacre. So in, after that happened, local aid held a forum. It's amazing that we know this happened, but like, uh, cause it's a tent, again, it's sort of just a little glimpse of what they probably happened all the time. But we know from records, right? From newspapers that local aid held a forum about Tulsa after it occurred. And we know from A. Philip Randolph and Chandler Owens magazine, The Messenger, because they reported there, they, they were at the meeting where they talked about it. And they talked about basically, go, they saw it as a class issue. This is about black workers and white workers being divided and that those who advocate for black only institutions, and at that time, Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, the UNIA was the largest black organization in the world. And so there were people who were saying, we need black unions. 
Fletcher rejected that. He was saying, no, we need to be an interracial institution. So let's keep in mind that black people are only 12% of the population of the USA. The idea that you're going to have a black only union isn't the path towards socialism. And so A, acknowledge and, and sort of tackle and target and name racism, but B, don't do it in their opinion in, in, in black institutions, Garveyite in particular. Randolph's paper, since it was a socialistic in, um, magazine, right, like sort of agreed with that view. And so that's why they were so excited about and reported regularly on Fletcher and Local 8. And a number of those documents are in the book too. So you mentioned or slipped in that Fletcher is buried in an unmarked grave in, in Brooklyn. Maybe I'll use this opportunity to give you, a, uh, because I know this is a something that you're working on and you know I, and I think it connects this public history thing that you're doing not, not only are you teaching public history not only is the structure of the book very much about crowdsourcing material and building something together but yeah so tell us about <laughs> tell us about this making uh, Ben Fletcher's legacy concrete or stone <laughs> yeah, or granite. Or granite. So Fletcher, Fletcher lived for, his, as far as we know, like say the last at least 15 years of his life in Brooklyn in Bedford-Stuyvesant. At that time, and Bed-Stuy wasn't as black as it later became, right? It actually became more heavily black in the post-World War II era. And so he, some of his white radical friends also lived in the same neighborhood. But anyway, he um, had health problems going back to the mid-30s and so was poor. His wife was probably the breadwinner. And buried. Actually, 100 people showed up. Like it, it, There was a New York Times obituary as well as in some newspapers elsewhere that are covered in the book, but unmarked grave, right? And so there's friends of mine and I, along with um, allies, have created a sort of a, a committee, quote unquote, um, where we're sort of have generated draft text. We've been in communication with the cemetery. We will soon announce, but not yet, a fundraising campaign to raise I don't know, a few grand to sort of get a granite marker for him in the section of the cemetery where he was buried, Evergreens Cemetery in Brooklyn. And uh, we're excited about that. I can even envision us succeeding and having late in 2021, perhaps post when COVID is a little less ferocious, right? Doing a public unveiling, maybe a really prominent one in Brooklyn at the cemetery uh, because he deserves to sort of be remembered. Of course, I'm proud of the book, but having a place to go to sort of honor him, I think will also be meaningful for many people. And after we succeed with that, we will also then push to try to do something in his home place of Philadelphia, maybe a mural or something of that sort, because Philadelphians also should do more to embrace the legacy and history that of their city in this regard. This has been so much fun. I, I've Really enjoyed talking to you because I think the, I think the story is, uh, you know, the story of Ben Fletcher, what he represents, is really important and couldn't be more timely given the, kind of, insane times we we find ourselves in. It's thrilling to sort of actually join Fui and School of Labor and Urban Studies. I, I really respect CUNY, especially as a former New York resident for the, the mission, right? I work at a public university as well. And so I, I'm proud to sort of be connected with you guys. And thank you again. Kafui, thanks for bringing the reissue of Cole's book to our attention in his blurb for the book. Stoughton Lynn suggests the book raises two important questions. One, about the ability of a Black worker, Fletcher, becoming a spokesperson who is able to develop a multiracial coalition among 
black workers from the American South and white workers from the US as well as immigrants from Europe? He suggests the answer to that question is yes. And what about this second question that Lind raises about the difficulty of creating a militant yet stable union? And I take it that the Wobblies, the uh, industrial workers of the world, were not in favor of negotiating contracts, but were the strike was the, the source of the power. Well, I think what's great is that Ben Fletcher is, he embodies all these different contradictions, <laughs> you know, that are, that are very, very alive at the time and still, still resonant. The contradiction between a labor organization as an institution that, you know, works for its members and serves its members and uh, a union or labor organization that's part of a movement that's attempting to transform the world. So I think, and, and Ben Fletcher is both, you know, he's in different parts of of his life, he is more inclined toward the former, and in other parts of his life, he's more inclined to the latter. So, and I think the book does that, and I think it does it really well. It doesn't offer an answer <laughs> how you reconcile those those tensions, but it lays them out or presents them to the reader in in the description in the biography of an actual living embodied person, which I think is unique and important. Right, and Cole has said he wants the book to serve as a kind of a useful history, a usable history. For some of those reasons, it seems uh, to fit the bill. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Issues like those raised by Cole's book and in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast and to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, go to newlaborforum.cuny.edu.